We've been, in a, we've been in a series this past year. We've been in a series on the book of John. We're going to start that series up next week. Uh, we took a short break to talk about some Christmas things and, and talk about Christmas uh, um, as we see it and different ideas concerning the uh, scriptural passages concerning Christmas. And then today, I want, I, this kind of occurred to me as, it, as I put these things together. I was thinking about in our study of John, and I have just been blasting this at you so that you, you're sick of hearing it, for those of you that come all the time, about Jesus came to bring life. He says that. He came to bring life, and he, and he qualifies it. He uses the special word for life, and then he uses, he tacks eternal onto that special word. So he shows them it's a very different kind of life, a quality of life. It's just a whole nother level of life. And Jesus said, I came to bring life. Christmas is about the beginning of that, when he came. And the whole point was life. As we look at how, what the angels said, and we look at all the things that happened around there, the whole point with that was that, that life is coming. New life is coming. We sang new wine. A new thing is coming, right? And I was thinking about in Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul talks, really, he's talking almost about the same thing, and it's about, okay, so what is this life? What does it mean? What are the implications? And the book of Ephesians is just full of this kind of stuff, but I want to take one little passage and talk about this, because it's an amazing picture of what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What kind of life are we talking about? And so what I'm saying, I label this, this is foundational truths. These are truths that you build on. These are truths that you stand on when time gets, when things get tough. These are truths that last and that are important. What kind of life is this that we see, that we hear, that, that God is offering to us? All right. So the first thing I want you to see, and well, you know what? Let me let me read the passage. Here we go. I'm going to read this to you. It's not going to be up on the screen. I know we have a screen missing. We're working on that. We were so smart in putting the the projectors up high so they show they give a great picture. The only thing that really was not quite so smart is it's really hard to get to those projectors, and uh, and we don't have a lift. We have scaffolding, and so this week you can be praying this week. Our associate pastor, Jose, is going to be climbing scaffolding. Uh, one time, I climbed that scaffolding one time, and I realized something. When you just put scaffolding up and you get about three layer levels, four levels up, it moves. It moves like this. And I climbed up with the safety belt and got to the top and immediately climbed straight down and said, I quit and walked away because it's just that's scary. So he's going to go up there and fix that, be praying for him. Because if he falls, I'm going to try to catch him. Um, but I've missed people before. Like, oh, sorry. Right. So um, where am I going? All right. I'm supposed to read scripture. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 1. Sorry. Starting in verse 12, he says, in order that. Now, let me just say this. He's, he's been talking about this incredible salvation that God brought and how God did it. And he says, in order that we, who were first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Right? So Paul's, he's, he's laying out some, some, some truths here that he wants us to get a hold of. And so we're going to look at them. And the first one is this. It is that life is founded on home, on hope. This life we have as followers of Jesus Christ, it's founded on hope. Now, he says it this way. He says, in order that we 
who were the first to hope in Christ. Now, hope is a word that in English, you know, we kind of think, well, I hope we're going to get to be able to do this, or I hope this is going to happen. But, but in the Greek, it's a much stronger word. It has this idea of a life-changing certainty about your future, right? So, so a very simple definition of hope, biblically speaking, would be a life-changing certainty about your future. And I want to say this because this is something that for uh, psychologists and, and, and psychiatrists, one of, the, one of the things you see so much is we are hope-based creatures as human beings. Human beings are hope-based creatures. That means how you live in the present is inevitably shaped by what you believe will happen in the future. How you live in the present will be shaped by what you believe will happen in the future. Now, I've used this illustration quite a few times. I know that. I got it from somebody else. I don't even remember exactly where it came from. But it's like this. Two guys working the same job. It's hot. It's stuffy. It's a miserable place to work. The foreman or the forewoman are yelling and cursing at you to work faster. Constant criticism in an incredibly hot and un uncomfortable environment. Now, one guy knows at the end of the day, he's going to get paid a hundred bucks for his work. But the other guy, the owner of the company came up and said, this is out of the blue. At the end of the day, you get a hundred thousand dollars. How do you think those two guys deal with the work of the day? Right? Hot, stuffy, Forewoman is yelling, and I don't even know if that's a word. Foreman is yelling and screaming, constant criticism. They're doing the same task. They're working the same hours, same heat, same foreman, same abuse. And they are processing what's going on based on the future. Because for one guy who's going to get $100, he's thinking, is this really worth it? Is this really worth what I'm going through to make these widgets for this company? I don't need this kind of abuse. It's hot. And that guy's crazy if he thinks I'm going to work faster, right? Because that's the guy getting $100. Now, the guy getting $100,000, what is he going? La, 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 you know, right? Oh, yes, yes, sir, you are right. I am a bum. You are so correct. I will try to work faster. Here I go. (laughs) You know so much about my parentage. I did not even realize that, right? This heat's not that bad. Why? What they know is coming changes how they process what they're going through in the moment. When you begin to understand your future, it will change the way you live in the moment. It will change what you live for. It will change how you react in situations. It will change how you live in the moment when you are sure you have a certainty of what is coming in the future. Because there's all kinds of people in, in, at this moment, you know, say driving down Jefferson Avenue, there is a guy who, or a woman who is a secularist saying, I don't know if there's a God or not. I don't know if I believe that, but I, I just believe once you die, you rot. There's no heaven, there's no hell. Someday the universe is going to end and that will be the end of it. And one person is a Christian and they're saying this, I believe when I die, I will go to be with God. And at the end of time, he will put everything right. Now, 
if they truly believe that, it will shape how they live. It will shape how they live. The problem is, though, this is where Christians can struggle. We don't live in light of the hope for the future. We don't live in light of that. And oftentimes, I'll be, if, if they're honest, most secularists don't live in light of what they believe about the future. There's a famous writer, Somerset Maugham. He wrote in the first half of the 20th century, he's considered one of the greatest English writers who's ever lived. And he wrote a book called Of Human Bondage. It was very autobiographical in nature. But he changed the names, right? So he wrote about this man named Philip Carey, who basically he was saying, I'm free, I'm free. None of this is true. I'm free. I can live any way I want. I can live any way I want. And it's interesting, as he goes through, you know, so many different things, at the end of the book, it talks about how he stops searching for happiness. He gives up on that and decides to just settle with his lot in life. This is all I've got. I just got to just settle for it. It's been a series of heartbreaks. It's been a series of disasters. It's been a series of disappointments. But this is my life. So I'm just in it. And mom writes this. He writes that there is no point to life. There is, there is no meaning to life. And he says, I believe this is true. Most people just ignore that. Most people live as if people really have value, but they don't. Most people live as if life has meaning, but it doesn't. Most people believe there is right and there is wrong, but there isn't. Many people believe that there are things worth living for and dying for, but there aren't. And he says, and they're just stupid because they don't think through what they really believe. It's very interesting. And he he personifies it with this guy named Philip Carey because this guy named Philip Carey finally realized it's not the end of his life. It's kind of in the middle of his life. But he realizes from what I've gone through, there is no hope. There is no meaning. There is no life. There is no happiness. So quit. Just give up. Just settle. Just grab for little bits of pleasure, of comfort as you go through life. And you think, man, what a terrible way to live. Because Christians say, no, that's wrong. Based on the word of God, no, there is a point to life. There is meaning in life. People have value. There is right and wrong. There are some things that are worth living for and dying for. See, we have a hope that can change the way we live. When we grapple with it and think it through, it changes how we live. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. It's, first, it's a life founded on hope. Second, it's a life founded on truth. So a life founded on hope. And now it's a life founded on truth. That's in the first part of verse 13. And it says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And so now Paul's talking about something. He's saying Christianity does not start by doing something. It starts by hearing something, a word, a message. You heard the truth. And this, 
This, this idea of truth is a very loaded word. In our culture, in our day, in our society, truth is an incredibly loaded word. You will get, if you talk to people about what is truth, you will get so many different answers. Because we have this idea in our culture. This is an idea that is, that is very prevalent in our culture, that we're not going to privilege anybody's particular truth. Everybody's is, is, is equal. Everybody's truth is equal. Everybody's discourse, they're valid, no matter what they claim. Somebody's, everybody's claim is no better than anyone else's claim. All are equally valid. But here's the problem, because when they're all equally valid, where is truth? It just becomes relative. Now, how did we get to this position in our culture? And it was for a good reason. It was to fight oppression. Some people would say, I, would ha- I have all the tr- truth, and they would oppress people. They would say, you don't have the truth. And so they would oppress them on the, in the name of truth, which is a terrible thing to do. And so what was, the, what was the response? Not, let's figure out what the truth is and how should we handle it. It's that all truth is truth. Nobody has a corner on truth. Everybody's got their own truth. There's a, I was reading this woman, and she's, a, she's famous um, in women's studies, and, uh, and uh, she worked in Africa for a number of years. She's in the medical field, and she fought against, um, um, you know, how they would uh, mutilate women uh, at a very young age to make them suitable for marriage in certain parts of Africa. And she realized something. Because she said, I believe that each culture is valid with their truth. And so who am I to tell them this is wrong? What right do I have to say it's wrong to mutilate your daughter? What right do I have that? Because even the women in that society seem to support it. So who am I to say that's wrong? And she writes about how she struggled with that, and she struggled with that, and she struggled with that. And finally she said, as much as I don't think anyone has an exclusive truth, I guess I do. Because this is wrong in any culture, in any part of the world, in any society, in any tribe, in any nation. To do that to your daughters is wrong. And she said, and I know I don't have a leg to stand on logically because what I'm saying goes against everything I believe. So what happens? We take this word truth. We say that nobody has a, nobody, nobody has a corner on any type of truth. We did it to fight oppression. And what happened was it created this incredible difficulty that our, right now, especially in philosophical circles since the 90s, they have been wrestling with like crazy. If we deprivilege everybody's position, say, yeah, well, that's just your truth. What do we do? We can't assert any position. We have no truth to stand on. See, if you attack everything and no one has the truth, then you've given up the fight to battle oppression because if everyone has truth, there's no real oppression. And it's amazing. We thought this idea, there is no truth, would be liberating. But in the end, it means you can't object to anything. You can't say anything's wrong. So it's worthless. It's worthless. And this is the idea of truth that is embedded in our society. This happens all the time. I talked to a guy one time. He was a cousin of mine. And, and I was telling him about what Christ had done to me for me. 
and then about what some things like this church was doing for people, for homeless people, for people, you know, struggling, for people going through difficulties, tragedies, all this, the, the things that we're trying to do to impact people. And I said, it's all, it's all based on the fact that as followers of Jesus Christ, he's called us to do this. And he looked at me and he said, you know, that is really great. And if that works for you, I'm happy for you. Now, that's one of those, right, those backhanded compliments. Because what is he saying? I think you're crazy. But if you're happy crazy, who am I to object? I think you're stupid. But if you're happy in your stupidity, who am I to object? I think you've got it totally wrong. But if you're happy in being wrong, who am I to object? Right? That's kind of what he's saying. Because he's saying, your truth is good for you, but it's not good for me. When we say that, what, what, I'm the arbitrator. I'm the final judge of what truth is. And, and that's what he was telling me. And I, I want to be honest with you. At first, I was kind of sad. And then I got a little angry. Right? So I just wanted, he was a smaller guy, so I felt like I could do it. I wanted to grab him. And say, I say, no, you know, like that. This is life-changing truth. This isn't happy truth. Because sometimes following Jesus, I'm not like top of the world happy, right? Because it's hard sometimes. You deal with a mess sometimes. You deal with people who are struggling. But it's life-changing truth. And it happened, it works for everyone. And it's very interesting in philosophical uh, circles. We suddenly there's been this kind of sea change. We start to have these people who are saying there is truth, there is truth, and and I feel like going welcome. We've been there for two thousand years, pal. You finally figured it out. Good for you, right? The gospel, the Bible's been telling this that the truth of this message, the word of truth, is the gospel of your salvation. The gospel, that word gospel just really means, it means an announcement of something that has already happened. All right? It's an announcement of something that's already happened. The Bible talks a lot about how we ought to live. But the Bible talks about how we ought to live based on what happened already for us. Right? Other religions say this, here's how you live, and then you can be saved. The Bible says, here's what's been done to save you. Now figure out how you should live based on that. It's totally the other way around. The gospel is not good advice on what to do. The gospel is good news on what has been done. And there's a tremendous difference there. Because that's the problem. Many times people have misconceptions about the Bible, about God, about Christianity. And they use those misconceptions for dismissing the whole thing. Right? I don't like that. So the whole thing's baloney. For instance, a person will say, I don't like how the Bible talks about sex and gender. It's regressive. Now, we could argue about that. If someone really was honestly interested in that, I could talk to them about that. I could talk about what the Bible says and and say, you may have some misconceptions here on what is being expressed here and talk about it. But if you say that, here's the thing that's important. And I said this to a person one time. Listen, we can talk about gender issues, sexual issues. We could talk about a lot of different issues. But first, let's talk about the big issue. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Do you see that that's the big one? 
That's way more important than any other ones. I don't, want the, I don't like what the Bible says. You know, the Bible, I think sometimes it looks like it supports slavery. Well, we could talk about that. I can argue with you on that, All right? But here's the important issue. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Because that is what we need to grapple with first. First. You can't go to the Bible and say, I don't like this, or maybe I don't like this. So the whole thing's out. you got to deal with the main issue. Because here's the deal. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then you don't have to believe anything in it. There's nothing to believe in there. Don't worry about it. Throw it away. That's what's key. But if he's risen from the dead, then we have to go and look at the Bible and say, what does it tell me on how to live? What does it tell me? You don't go to the Bible first to decide how to live. You go first to find out what's been done. You have to start with Jesus, checking out evidence for the resurrection, the claims of Jesus to be son of God, stuff we're addressing now in the book of John, the character of Jesus, we're reading about it in the book of John. And so, so many times people reject the Bible on ethical or just sideline issues. But it's different because the Bible tells us what's been done. Most religions are an ethical treatise, and, and, and that's how you accept them or reject them. But the Bible goes at it backwards. The Bible says, look, here's what's been done for you. This is what's most important. Now we can figure out how you live. But this is what's important, what's been done. This is a key. This is life-changing for us. So being a Christian is hearing the truth and believing the gospel. So it's founded on the truth. Third one, final one. It's a life founded on hope. It's a life founded on truth. It's a life full of glory. This is a huge, rich word, this word glory. It's mentioned twice in this passage. He starts there in the very first part of the passage, and now right at the very end part here, he he mentions it twice. He wants you to focus on that. He wants you to see this is something important. He says, having believed, you were marked on him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. So he says it twice. And, you know, we've talked about this because this can be a tricky issue for a lot of people, this idea of praising and glorifying God and talking about how when we begin to understand what the word means and what's going on here, it's this idea, you know, I love every, every, every I love this every time, you know, anyone has a baby. They want to show you pictures of the baby. Why? They want to praise their baby. Look how cute this baby is. Look how wonderful this is. And it's great. You know, when a person falls in love with a person, they want to tell other people how great this person is. Why? They want to praise them. Why? Because it brings joy. It brings joy when someone says, and I mean, I, I, we had five kids, and everyone we met that I'd show a picture of one of our babies to, they'd say, you have the most beautiful babies I've ever seen in my life. It's just amazing. I don't know how that happened for me, but it was good. And it brought me joy to show them that. When I started dating my wife, I told my brother, one of my brothers who lived near me, this is, this, this is awesome. She is great. She is just so awesome. 
And he's always like, slow down, slow down, you know, take it easy, don't go crazy. And I'm just like, no, you don't understand. I think I'm, I think this may be the one I want to marry. Because this is, she's crazy. I'm, I'm nuts over her. And I still am. So awesome. Why? Because this is so weird. Because telling you that brings me joy. I want to praise her. I want to glory her because it brings me joy. God says to us, I know how I made you. I know how you work. I want you to praise me because you will find joy in it. I want you to serve me because that's where true joy is. If you pursue the joy, and Jesus tells us that, you won't quite get it. You get You'll be grasping all the time and get little bits of it. Not enough. He says, but if you pursue me, joy comes with the deal. And so this is an incredible thing. When he talks about this life full of glory, full of, full of joy, he's, he's trying to teach us something here. First thing he's teaching us is you are God's possession. He says, you you are God's possession. In, in that little verse there, he talks about this. Brings, and, and that brings in this idea. If I'm God's child, how did that happen? How did that happen? I was adopted. Scripture makes that very clear. When I came to know Jesus Christ, I was adopted into his family. And so now he says, you have an inheritance. In verse 14, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance? You have an inheritance. And you got that when you were adopted. Now, back then, you know, an inheritance, it, it wasn't money in the bank. They didn't have that per se. It, you know, it, it was more an object. It was things that were important or worth a lot, uh, you know, land or a home or something like that. And if you imagine your home, let's say you, you have, a, let's say you have a, a, a nice house, but you have a family heirloom, maybe some sort of a ring that's worth a tremendous. You took it to the Antiques Roadshow, Right. And they said, you're not going to believe this. Hold on to the table. You know, that thing's worth $500,000. You got this little ring for my grandmother. Who wants to buy it? That's what I would do. I'd sell it right away. But say you keep on to it. And so, <laughs> excuse me, you have in, in, in your little jewelry box, maybe you have this ring that is just a fantastic thing. It's kind of your inheritance, right? So let's say a fire alarm goes off in your house. What do you grab, right? My shoes, my shoes. No, no, right, right. Let's get the pots and pans while we can't. No, you're not getting that, right? What are you going? Where's that stinking ring? <laughs> That's worth more than the whole house put together. You grab that ring. For me, I'd grab the ring and then I grab my computer and I run out and then I go, oh, my kids. Hey, <laughs> right, <clears throat> I forgot. <laughs> I, I grab that ring, I grab my computer and I get out. Why? What is that? Your information and your net worth. That's everything in this age. That's everything. That was everything back then. Your information. And, and the Bible it looks at this from an incredibly radical perspective. Here's God. He owns all the stars. Our Father who art in heaven. He owns it all. He owns all the stars, all the galaxies, all the worlds. And he looks at you and he says, this is my treasured possession. 
This is like an inheritance. When he looks at you, he feels wealthy. He gets great joy from looking at you. Now, the Bible has been addressing this idea of self-esteem from the very beginning, from the book of Genesis, way, way before it came popular in our day. And I started thinking about this a while back. I said, how, how do we do What do we do? Our culture, how do we help with self-esteem? So I went to the center of the self-esteem network, which is the magazine rack at a grocery store, where they have these articles, these, store, these, book, these magazines with articles about self-esteem. And so, and I, I, I'm be honest, I felt so weird. I bought some because I wanted to read them, so I bought some. And I read, what did they say about self-esteem? And they said things like this. Not bad things, just, just said things like this. Think about your talents. When you're feeling like you're worthless, think about your talents. Try to lose weight. Set reachable goals. Spend more time with people you enjoy being with. Spend more time doing what you like to do. Spend more time with people who appreciate you. Pat yourself on the back sometimes. Now, those aren't bad things, but I know I think if you think about them, a lot of them have problems, right? Spend more time with people who appreciate you. What if you're struggling with finding people who appreciate you? Think about your talents. What if you feel like, I don't have any talents? Spend more time you enjoy being with, and you're like, ah, not many people. I have to go to work. Right? So there's problems there, because those are goals, but they're not always very reachable. But listen to this. Now, compare those ideas with this. I'm a treasure. I am a special treasure of God. When he looks at me, his heart wells up and he feels wealthy. The God of the universe considered no cost too small compared to the joy of having me. And we see that sometimes in people around us. I remember telling uh, my mom and dad, about my wife at that point, I asked her to finance, fiance, my fiance. And I said to my parents, I'm learning about love from her because she really, really loves me. We have a God who says, I love you. I love you. And when the universe catches on fire, God grabs you first. We need to think about that. We need to meditate on that. We need to allow this to take hold of us, or we will end up being just like everyone else, scrambling and scrounging for strokes and approval, longing for acclaim and affirmation, always longing for more, and always struggling with being vaguely upset and unfulfilled. We need to think about that. It's like the old stories. 
of a prince or a princess who gets conked on the head and ends up living in the street not knowing who they really are. And then we do things like we get upset and we get frustrated when someone has slighted us or when something goes unnoticed or when something bad happens. And we forget that we are God's treasured possession. We can't. If we understand that, we can't nurse grudges. If we understand that, our pride won't be hurt. If we understand that, we won't feel worthless. We won't feel worthless at all. So you're God's possession. Let me just show you something here. You are looking for a future redemption. And this word redeemed it has the past, the present, and the future all wrapped up into it. So there's a very big part of it that's a future redemption. That idea that on the last day of history, a glory will descend on the people who are in Christ. And it will be so powerful. It will be so glorious. The shockwave of the beauty of God's glory will cleanse the universe from everything that is wrong. Um, I, I saw the movie Don't Look Up not too long ago. And just at the very end, as this, as this huge comet, this planet killer, strikes the earth, it creates a shockwave. And they do a really good job of visualizing what that shockwave would be like as it just encompassed the globe. And it would just... And then it just went. And they would show a house, and then... And they'd show some people, and... And it was just, like, terrifying, right? And, and, and I, it was... I'd been studying this some, and I started thinking, that's the shockwave of God's glory. But it will be this redeeming, glorious shockwave, not this destructive, hurtful thing. The glory will hit us, and the fallout will affect the whole universe. All that is wrong will be gone in you and in the whole world. Death, decay, suffering. It will be the ultimate spring, the ultimate dawn. And we all know this kind of like in a theological or an intellectual kind of a way. But the idea here is as we think about it, it becomes more personal. It becomes more concrete so that it affects our lives. Because understanding your future impacts your present right now. Like if you really understand this, you don't have to take pictures. You know, people take pictures. You go on vacation, you go somewhere awesome. Oh, I wish we'd have taken a picture. But if what we're in really is kind of the title page of reality, right, the foreword of the book of the, of the universe, then, then really, in a sense, this, this world we live in is just the mudroom of the reality of God. And who takes pictures of their mudroom, right? Now, I'm still going to take pictures. I still love going and seeing beautiful things in beautiful places. But I also understand this is nothing compared to what's coming. So you are God's possession. You are looking for a future redemption. And you have the deposit of the Holy Spirit. He tells us that, the deposit, this first installment. It's like, it's like earnest money in, in a financial term. It's, a, it's, it's something that guarantees something. I used to use an airline ticket as an illustration. But in the last three weeks, airline tickets aren't worth <laughs> the, the paper they're printed on with all these cancellations and everything that's going on. But it was a guarantee of something. Rulers would, would take their signet ring 
and they'd press it on a piece of wax on a letter. And that signet ring would guarantee that that letter would get to the person and it would provide protection for whoever was carrying it on the authority of Caesar or the king or whoever. That little imprint in wax carried this incredible weight of power so that that letter would get to its destination. You are the letter God has imprinted by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the seal on you, guaranteeing you will reach your destination. It's a guarantee. We have the deposit of the Holy Spirit. We tend to underestimate this. We tend to minimize it. But the Spirit is the power for change in our lives. Oftentimes, we don't realize the changes that are happening. Have you ever looked back and go, man, I have changed. You didn't see it necessarily, but it was going on. Because we are, we're founded on that, that we look for hope and change. We look for second chances, third chances, for, for people. I mean, look at Peter. Look at Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul. They were terrible prospects for future leaders of the church, right? Can you imagine a committee interviewing them? Peter, state your qualifications for being a leader of the church. Well, I'm not well educated. I shoot my mouth off at the worst times. I seem to have a knack for doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. And when I say the right thing, I often contradict it not long, not long after. Right? The committee would be like, oh, hey, thanks for your time. <laughs> we'll keep looking. Right? And what if it's Saul of Tarsus? State your, your qualifications for being a leader of the church. I hate Christians. Hmm. Thanks for being honest. Right? But God was at work through the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives, and they changed. And he's the same God, and it's the same Holy Spirit that is in you. This kind of hope, this kind of power, this kind of glory, this kind of future, all these things we're talking about here, there's nothing else that compares with this. There's nothing else that's worth worth this. If there really is a God in in whose service is perfect freedom, if there really is a God who is the source of beauty and joy, there really is a God, and he says he will come to you. He will come to you and live with you. That's something worth risking everything for. And I know, I, I've talked to some people, they say, you know, I'm kind of interested in becoming a Christian, but it might hurt my career. Um, what will my friends think? What will my family think? Um, it might kind of uh, impinge on my personal life because it teaches a lifestyle that I'm not comfortable with, you know, about marriage, sex, and that, those kind of things, whatever it may be. I'm not sure if I want to be challenged to give my stuff to other people. I don't want to have to think through my responsibilities for whatever, the environment, for, for how people are, for, 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 for poor people, for this, for that, for the other. I don't want to have to think those things through and figure out what my part in that could be. But you see, those things are just minuscule in light of what is being offered. And we have to understand, if we're going to meet the supreme being, we have to be willing to give him supremacy. And so in context of this whole passage, of what we've been learning in John, how do we know that we're treasured? We look at the cross. 
where the Father and the Son were willing to lose each other to gain you. How do we know we're going to get future glory? We look at the manger. Philippians 2, it says he emptied himself of glory so that we could be filled with it. And you are now marked by God as a possession, by the Holy Spirit. You're his treasure. It's, it's, again, if God's house is burning, he's grabbing you first. That's an incredible privilege that we have. And as we think it through, it changes us from the inside out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word. I look at this passage, and we haven't hardly scratched the surface of what's in, in this. It's so deep. It's so wide. It's so powerful. But, Lord, as we scratch the surface, we get glimpses. Father, we get glimpses, all of us, everyone here. We want a life that's worth living. We want a life of meaning. We want to be involved in something that will last. God, help us to see in our daily life how living for you is what we're made for. And then as we do that, Lord, we just we find that joy. We find those times where it is inexpressible. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.